This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. interesting uh, way to do things. I think this is about as close to John Wesley as I'll ever get uh, doing this kind of thing, but um, it's fascinating. So, you know, for many of us, when we're young, uh, we just can't wait to become adults, right? In our early years, uh, we, we want to rush that process to become an adult, it seems like. And those of you who are teenagers right now, uh, you can probably really relate to that. It's it's that period of time where you're you're in this awkward in-between stage. You want people to treat you like a responsible adult. Uh, you, you want people to treat you like a responsible young man or young woman. But sometimes your immaturity can still get the best of you. And then it'll make the adults in your life kind of pull back and and question things a little bit. You want to be seen as responsible, but... Maybe you lose a phone or break a phone that they just bought you. You want to be taken seriously, but you don't quite make the grades that you should, so they question a little bit. You want to be looked at as mature, but you still argue maybe about silly things with siblings or with your parents that you shouldn't. And as every single adult here this morning knows, uh, many of us, when we were your age, we went through the same exact things. We went through the same exact things. And... Uh, Many of us, we couldn't wait to get out of high school. Uh, We couldn't wait even to get out of town. For some of you, maybe you couldn't wait to get off the islands. Many of us couldn't wait to get out from under our parents' roof so that we can make our own choices and have our own lives. And when we finally venture off, we actually find ourselves needing help, perhaps even their help. Uh, and, And so... We, we call back home for money. We call back home for help. Or we don't like the loneliness. Uh, friends are fewer and far between than we expected. And we realize that being an adult actually isn't easy. And isn't it nearly easy as, th- as we thought it was going to be? It can actually be really stressful and challenging. Uh, and lately, for me, my own adulting skills, uh, they've been pushed to the edge Uh, Having my kids at home 24-7, right, it's a blessing in some ways, but in other ways, it can seem like the school system has played a sick prank on me. Um, But, hey, that's adulting, right? It's adulting. Um, Or, as an adult, uh, if we're married, right, we have to constantly and continually work at that. We have to constantly and continually work at marriage and try to keep things strong, We have to push through our disagreements. Uh, We have to push through our arguments. We have to seek common ground with one another. And that part of adulting, right, it isn't easy. All you couples here, you know that it isn't easy. The financial burdens, uh, the financial strains of adulting, they they can be really tough. And so there are lots of things that as a youngster, we can't even anticipate about adulthood. The price of a car, the cost of a home, or a loan, even a loan that you have to take out in Hawaii to buy a gallon of milk. Um, One of the things that I couldn't have anticipated as a youngster in waiting was, as an adult, having my credit cards hacked, 
Right? I mean, that thought never crossed my mind as a youngster. It wasn't even on my radar. But as an adult, I've had my credit card hacked several times. There we go. We got, got some beeps over there. Come on, Scotty, get it together. Scott, get it together. <laughs> um, so I've had my credit card information hacked several times. Um, and you know what? These folks, they, take your inf they took our information and went on a shopping spree. And you, what you have to do is you have to cancel the credit cards. You have to apply for new credit cards. You have to do all this paperwork, sit on the phone for hours. Having my credit cards hacked was totally, totally and completely unexpected. But there it was, right? Somebody hacked into my account and had been trying to pass themselves off as me, as Michael Halcom. And in our world today, uh, things like that occur way more than we realize. I recently read that in 2019, there were nearly 270,000 cases of credit card hacking in the United States. That doesn't seem like a lot, I guess, but that number actually doubled, right, uh, in the time afterwards. So it's increasing at a rapid rate, uh, especially as these big data systems are being hacked uh, more and more. So 270,000 is actually only uh, a per small percentage of the 700,000 cases of identity theft that occurred uh, this year, right, So or the previous year. So 700,000 cases of identity fraud or 700,000 cases of identity theft, not just credit cards, but in general. And so that's something that I couldn't have anticipated as an adult. I was reading a book this week. It was actually uh, an autobiography, and it, and it kind of it talked a lot about uh, identity hacking or identity theft, and uh, it it actually was addressing specifically childhood identity theft. And the author of this work shared how, uh, unbeknownst to her, as an 11-year-old, someone had opened credit cards in her name. But it wasn't until many years later, uh, when she was in college and she went to check her credit report, that she found out about it. And her credit by then was completely ruined. And she had a d very difficult time trying to restore her credit. Her life was in ruins. And it's a really harrowing story that she tells, but it's a really very r real thing these days. Having your uh, accounts or your uh, identity compromised and stolen tarnished is a real concern and so what I, what I learned as I was reading this was that identity theft victims they often try to seek completely new identities but they got to wade through all this bureaucratic red tape to be able to do that they got to get new social security cards and new names and new driver's licenses and so on it's this monumental undertaking to go through the process others however they attempt to they, they actually attempt to try to catch the people who are hacking them and who are stealing their identities and they'll spend an entire lifetime trying to chase these people, trying to restore their pride, trying to restore their livelihood, their name and their identity. And because this notion of identity is so central to every single one of us, there are many researchers these days who engage in what's known as social identity theory. Social identity theory. And there are a lot of variables uh, uh, to this theory, social identity theory. But if we wanted to sort of boil it down, boil this theory down to its core, here's what it is. Social identity theory explores the topic of identity, especially in relation to groups. And so, for example, the theory asks, 
how being on a team affects and shapes our identity. Or it might ask, how is our identity shaped by our family? Or it might seek to, to find out how we allow our friend group or friend groups to give shape to our identity. It, it could explore how our jobs, our neighborhoods, our states, our political affiliations, etc. All these groups that we're connected with, they give shape to our identity. And there's something else that it can explore too, the social identity theory. What happens to our identity when all those people, those groups, are gone? Who are we when we're no longer part of that team or that neighborhood or that family or that friend group? Who are we? What's left of us? Who are we when, when we change, when we uh, lose a job? Who are we when we're not part of the family that we grew up with? Who are we when our friends dump us and move on? Who are we when our friends move away? So all these things, they factor into shaping our identities. And they can shape our identities at lots of different levels, at various levels, some more or less than others. And I, again, I go back to the teenagers here. I think about you all in particular, trying to navigate middle school and high school contexts, right? Teenagers seeking to be part of a team or a club or a friend group because they know that it'll bring a certain amount of prestige or, or put them in contact with someone that they might like or admire. And as adults, right, uh, we know that many times as we sit and watch this, teenagers can make awful mistakes. A lot of us ourselves made those mistakes, and our parents watched on as we did. And it's especially painful when we see young folks that we care about and we love, especially if they're our own kids or our own family, choosing the wrong groups of people to be around, to associate with, to run with, to befriend. It can be devastating and heartbreaking because we know where it's likely going to head. But being young, it's usually very difficult to, to see and discern those kinds of things. And we all know that in times, uh, teams are going to change, clubs are going to change, close friends are going to change, friend groups are going to ch change, they're going to morph, maybe even become non-existent. And so what happens to our identity when the people that we counted on temporarily are no longer part of our life, are no longer in the picture. Can we function without them? Do we know who we are? And this is why it, it's so important to have an identity rooted in Christ. Because he's promised to stay with us. He's promised not to leave. He's promised not to turn his back. He's promised to make us his own. And at the end of the day... That unwavering, consistent rock is the sturdiest thing, the sturdiest relationship that we have in this life. And that, praise God, is the firmest foundation we have to build our identity on. And so this morning, our focal passage in Revelation, it addresses or gets at this very thing. So we're going to have a look at Revelation 9, 13 to 21. We'll finish up chapter 9 today, and we'll venture into chapter 10 next week. So here's what the text says, starting with verse 13, 9, 13. And the sixth messenger blew the trumpet, and I heard one voice from out of the four horns of the altar of God, the one before God, saying to the sixth messenger, the one having the trumpet, loose the four messengers, those bound at the great Euphrates River. 
And they were loosed, the four messengers, the ones having prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and year, in order that they might kill a third of the people. And the number of the soldiers of the horsemen was twice ten thousand of ten thousands. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and the ones sitting on them having flaming breastplates, both hyacinth and sulfur, and the heads of the horses as heads of lions, and out of their mouths fire was coming out, both smoke and brimstone. And from a third of these plagues, a third of the people were killed from the fire, and smoke and brimstone coming out of their mouths. For the authority of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like snakes, having heads, and with them they do unrighteousness. And the ones remaining of the people, the ones not killed in the plagues, they didn't repent from the deeds of their hands, where lest they worship demons and gold idols and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which are neither able to see nor hear nor walk, they also didn't repent of their murders, nor of witchcraft, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thieving. All right, so there are two really, really important things that I want to draw your attention to here. The first of these is basically the content of verses 14 to 21. These, these verses talk about one of the prominent characters of the story of Revelation. And as you guys, you guys can probably predict what I'm going to say here, it's the imposter bride, right? As you know, this imposter bride, she's constantly trying to uh, imitate both Christ and Christ's bride, the church. So what we see throughout, this is a first too. <laughs> so woo! So what we see throughout is this imposter bride. She's always mimicking or imitating or parodying, parodying uh, Christ and the bride of Christ. She makes herself look like Christ and seem like Christ and Christ's bride in order to draw people away to herself. She's essentially duping them or tricking them. That's her chief goal, to draw people away from the bride of Christ and from Christ himself unto herself. And so if we were to look again at uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 13, she's actually described for the first time here as the four messengers. And if you've been following the Revelation series uh, at all, you know that the four messengers are introduced in Revelation 4. And it's actually a symbolic way of talking about us, the church, right? Christ's bride. But since the imposter bride keeps trying to imitate us, the bride of Christ, it's no surprise that here, just a few chapters later, she tries to, to, to take on, right, this identity as a messenger. She, she's at her core. The imposter bride is at her core an identity thief. And so whenever Christ's bride does something, hear me out here, whenever Christ's bride, the church, does something, the imposter bride is trying to copy or imitate or hijack that identity for herself. And we know that it's the imposter bride imitating in 913 because she intends to wreak havoc on people, especially on those in her own group. But in Revelation... Whenever the imposter bride makes an appearance, it's really cool what happens. She's exposed for who she is. And the imposter bride, whenever she's exposed, a description of her traits is given in Revelation. And so what Revelation is trying to do is make it very easy for all of us to recognize what the imposter bride and her people look like. 
what they sound like, what they do. Because if we can recognize them, one, we can we cannot do that ourselves, but two, we know that they need repentance. They need Christ. And so we can evangelize. So um, she's trying to pass herself off as the bride of Christ, but she isn't the bride of Christ. And, and what we see in these verses, she's actually very, very different than the bride of Christ. She, as verse 21 tells us, she's made up of folks who do not repent. They don't repent of their murder, their witchcraft, their sexual immorality, their thieving. They worship idols. They're in league with demons. They do evil deeds with their hands. But perhaps most importantly, everything the imposter bride and her people do is death-dealing. It leads to death. So this interruption here, after the sixth angel uh, blown by the Holy Spirit, or the sixth trumpet blown by the Holy Spirit, it shows us who the imposter bride is. And as you know from these descriptions that we just read, these things were actually affecting the seven congregations back in Revelation 2 and 3. Right? So these are things that they can actually try to work their way into the church and affect the church. So we have to safeguard against those things. So it's really interesting. If you read Revelation closely, you find this pattern happening. It's a really, really interesting pattern uh, that's going on here. One, whenever the bride does something, the imposter bride is going to try to imitate her. And two, whenever the imposter bride makes her appearance, especially as the imitator, she's exposed. In Revelation, John lays her traits bare. And this gives those who are part of the bride, as I just said, the ability to recognize her for who she is so that they're not lured away by her. And amazingly, right, that the same thing is absolutely true for us today. We have the clues to be able to identify anyone who might be part of this imposter bride. Now, there's another, text, another uh, element of this text that I want us to zero in on. It's this reference in 9.13 to the four horns of the altar. Now, if you, if you re read that closely, you'll notice that these four horns on the four corners of the altar, the horns are actually speaking. They're actually speaking, right? And so if you go back to Revelation 8, we were introduced to the altar in the temple. And you'll recall that, um, that the, the altar was visited by the high priest on Yom Kippur, the, the Israelite holiday known as the Day of Atonement. And on that day, right, the high priest would, would make an atonement, an atoning sacrifice. And as he exited the temple, after everything was complete, he would signal for the trumpets to blow, to sound. And it would signal the completion of the atonement, of the sacrifice. And if you've been following me, you, you know that here in Revelation, we're in the midst of these uh, seven trumpet blows. And it's working up toward the completion of when that seventh one's blown, of Christ's atoning work. But after each blow, there's an interruption, which is done by the imposter bride. It's an attempt by the imposter bride to slow down the atoning work of Christ, or at least its completion. It's an attempt to thwart the completion of the atoning work of Christ. And so in 9.13, we have this altar mentioned again. But we specifically have those four horns on the four corners of the altar. Now, that number four is super important. It sounds very much like the four living creatures 
from the four corners of the land that we had encountered earlier in Revelation? Well, that's because it's the same thing. These four horns on the altar are now representing the bride of Christ crying out in the midst of Christ's atoning work. So I want to explain this because it's really, really fascinating stuff. What we have to do is we have to be a little bit familiar with Israelite thought and tradition to be able to get this. So hang with me here. If you go back to the Old Testament, uh, you, you would learn that horns are actually a symbol of power. So if you read Lamentations 2, 3, uh, for instance, you find God, he's pictured there as breaking all the horns of Israel, which is a way of talking about stripping her, Israel, of all of her power. And so we, we can carry this thought over to the altar, right? The altar with four horns uh, represents atoning power because that's where the atoning sacrifice took place. It's sacrificial power. And because of that, in Israelite tradition, uh, there was this practice known as grabbing the horns. Grabbing the horns. Or you could call it taking the horns. And it was about grabbing the horns on the altar. Someone who had committed a crime or an offense uh, would possibly want to do this. It was a way of seeking asylum. So if they committed a crime and they ran to the altar and they grabbed the horns, uh, they could have asylum from their offense and not be killed for it. It was a sort of freedom from death. And you can read this practice of grabbing the horns in Exodus. It's Exodus 21, 12 to 14. There's actually two really cool cases of it in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. We read about these two characters named Adonijah and Joab, and they both flee to the tent, and they lay hold of the horns on the altar in an effort uh, to seek asylum. It signifies their desire for asylum, freedom from death. And of course, being driven to the altar, right? It's, it's linked closely with repentance. In Revelation 9.13, that one voice from the four horns of the, the altar, right, symbolizes the bride of Christ from the four corners of the land who have repented. They've cried out with one voice to God. They've sought asylum in Christ's atoning work. But they're sharply contrasted, sharply contrasted with the imposter bride, this imposter messenger who absolutely rejects repentance and the idea of a seeking, seeking asylum in Christ. But the amazing thing is, is that now in Revelation, we move from the, the old altar and the old sacrificial system to seeking asylum in Christ and his atoning work. So grabbing the horns of the altar is a way of talking about grabbing onto Christ and his atoning power in Revelation. It's his asylum giving power, his, his freedom from death power. And here's the thing, though the imposter bride who thrives on rejecting repentance is always around waiting and working, trying to pull people away to herself and compromise their identities in Christ, we can stand strong. And in this life, the imposter bride, um, you, just like the imposter bride, you know what happens. We often present ourselves as people we're not, just like the imposter bride does. We, we follow in her footsteps. We're, we sometimes are deluded and deceived. We're, we put on a front. We put on a mask. A lot of you got masks on. Um, we put on a show, right? We act like someone we're not. We imitate, we parody, we mock, and we, and we live a life in which we're merely a shadow 
of who we really are and who we're really created to be. And this can happen at any stage of life, young, middle age, old, whatever, any stage of life. So when you're a kid, you can act like someone you're not to try to get people to laugh, to try to get friends, to try to win favor. When we're teenagers, the pressure is on often to be someone that we're not, right? Um, we, we place our identities in things that are fleeting, in people who don't have our best interests in mind, although they might think they do, in friends who can lead us down wrong paths, in individuals who have a selfish agenda that we don't realize, in people who want us to subscribe to their beliefs and their ideologies rather than Christ's. As adults, it happens too. It can happen professionally can happen in our families and in our neighborhoods. can happen in our churches. We find ourselves uh, putting up these fronts so that people don't know the real us. So they don't know about the arguments that we might have at home behind closed doors. So they don't know that we're actually very, very lonely. So they don't know that we're starving for company. So they don't know that anything's wrong. So they don't know about our financial struggles. So that they don't know the relational turmoil that, that, that's taking place and laying siege to our, our mental, emotional, and physical health. We put up these blockers and we're really good at it as adults. And we keep people at a safe distance. We, we sort of spiritually and relationally stiff arm them. And in the process... Sometimes what happens is we engage in self-sabotage. We end up sabotaging our own identities, especially the identity that we have rooted in Christ. Uh, the author and preacher named Mike Bro he says that there are four ways that we sabotage ourselves. And in the end, uh, we set ourselves up for identity theft. One of those ways is relationships. I alluded to this a moment ago, but one way that we can have our identity stolen by, is by someone we've formed a, a friendship or a relationship with. They end, us, they end up shaping us into who they want us to be rather than us being who we are and who we were created to be. Maybe they threaten us with, with leaving and not being a friend any longer if we don't become who they desire us to be. Or maybe they, they, they don't say the threat but it's kind of just there, hanging and looming. It's like being a teenager who does these things because out of sheer desperation, they just want to fit in. But again, who are they? Who are we when that person or that group is long gone? Appearance is another one of these things that, that can steal our identity. We buy into the lie that we just need to be this or just need to be that. Need to be this person or that person. Like this person or like that person. Skinnier, richer, smarter, prettier, more popular, more spiritual, whatever. We hunger and thirst after a mirage. We starve to be what we're not. We run after this elusive thing in order to become this elusive person we're not and that we were never meant to be. And we lose our identity in the process of doing that. We lose who we are and who we were meant to be. And closely related to that, especially for us adults, is success. Right? Success can actually rob us of our identity. Success is kind of tricky because, well, who gets to define success? If, if we let others define it for us, we'll never achieve it. We'll never find it. Heads up, truck coming through. Um, whether we're chasing a promotion 
uh, or a corner office, uh, or a bigger desk, or the next rank, or a higher pay grade, or whatever. That pursuit sometimes can wreck us. It can wreck our identities and we can get consumed by it. Right? Identity theft is often found in a marathon sprint of coming across this successful to everyone who sees us. Maybe it was a parent or an old teacher who doubted us or accosted us with the need to be more successful. And that voice kind of just sits in there for year, years and reverberates and haunts us. can rob us of our identity. Another thing is the past. It can rob us of our true identity. We, we had an identity maybe drilled into us by a family member at a young age. We had an embarrassment at a young age that follows us like a dark cloud. We've always been in a financial bracket that has constrained us. We have past behaviors and addictions that always walk behind us at a fingertip's length. We have failures that whisper in our ears. And in time, the past that sort of just gnaws at us and devours at us from the inside out. And our identity, it ends up being gone. And you know where I'm heading, right? We can get new identities. We can get new identities in Christ. And as we've said much throughout our study of Revelation, when Christ is the center, everything changes. You see, the first, the first rule of, the ide of identity for the Christian is this. The chief thing that determines who we are is whose we are. And you know, as we're finishing up chapter 9 of Revelation this morning, you're well aware that the number 7 is important throughout the text. It's that number of completion or wholeness. And so I want to give you seven things that I believe make up our Christian identity. There are more, of course, but these seven, I think, are key. They give, a, they give shape to a sevenfold identity in Christ, a life with Christ at the center. The first is this, that we are made in God's image, and we all know this truth. In Christian tradition, we have a wonderful phrase uh, for that from the Latin language. It's imago dei, which, by the way, is our word of the week, imago dei. It means the image of God. And that's where we begin as believers, imago dei, the image of God. We're made in God's image. We did not come from the slime. We did not come from the fish. We were made in the image of God. And none of us can escape that reality. There's no human that can bypass that fact. People can act like it's not true. People can live like it's not true. They can choose to ignore it and not believe it, but it's true nevertheless. Each life is made in God's image, and that's where the roots of our identity begin. Being made in the image of God means that you matter, that your life matters, and that above all else, you matter to God. And nothing changes that reality. Not even turning your back on God changes that reality. And all of those who make up the imposter bride, they're still made in God's image. They're still imago Dei. And as we've seen in Revelation so far, and as we'll continue to see, He keeps giving them ample opportunities to repent and recognize and claim and lay hold, on to, this, lay hold to this truth. He wants them, He longs for them, He yearns for them to come back to Him. We're made in His image. We are Imago Dei. That's the first truth. It leads directly to the second, that we're loved by God. You are loved by God. That sounds like the first because it's directly related to it, but it's different. 
It's not simply that you're made in God's image, but it's that he made you in his image and he loves you. In spite of your failings and shortcomings, he loves you. In spite of your back turnings on him, he loves you. In spite of your bad behaviors and destructive habits, he loves you. And because he loves you, he hurts for you and he hurts with you sometimes. But he also rejoices for you and rejoices with you sometimes. Here's the third truth. The Spirit has been at work around you and in you. If you're a follower of Christ and you've yielded your life to Him and pledged your allegiance to Him, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Spirit longs to be your advocate, your comforter, your teacher, your gift giver. He longs to carry you, to walk with you, to speak to you, and always be with you. He'll not leave you or forsake you as long as you keep Christ at the center. So, that's the first three. You're created in God's image, you're loved by God, and you have the Spirit at work around you and in you. The fourth is this. You're called to be shaped by the church. You are called to be a church people. And that word that I made up a, a few months ago gets at this, ecclesioformity. A life shaped in and by the church. You are to love Christ's church, his bride. You are to nurture her and never forsake her. You are through her to prepare for Christ's return and share the gospel in word and in deed. Here's the fifth truth. You're saved by grace. And this is not of your own working or your own accord. You didn't do anything to merit that. It's all from and because of Jesus. You and I, we could never achieved, have achieved salvation on our own. But because he's given us this gracious gift, we're called to give and devote our lives to him entirely. And here's the sixth truth. If you are in Christ and the Spirit is in you, you are sanctified. In fact, you have been entirely sanctified, right? Your heart, as you've heard me say before, has been popped back in place. by original. It was popped out of place by original sin, but the Spirit of God has popped it back in place. And that has enabled all of us to love perfectly, to love purely, without ulterior motives and ulterior intentions. So, as we remember what Paul says in Thessalonians, God's will for us is to be sanctified, to be perfected, to be perfect as Christ is perfect. And this accumulates, as you know, as you've heard me say, in holy moments, in perfect moments. And as we mature in our faith, we should notice that those holy moments and those perfect moments come at an increasing rate. And finally, the seventh truth. You actually are the bride of Christ. And that means that you are here resisting the imposter bride and exposing her on the one hand, but on the other hand, you're faithfully preparing this place for Christ's return, for our bridegroom's return even calling them to repentance. You're being an unspotted bride, unashamed of the gospel, mighty and wise in truth, and mighty and wise in Him and in His name. And these seven truths, this sevenfold truth, you can kind of think of it like a bicycle wheel, right? These seven truths, they sort of form the outer wheel and the, and the seven spokes with Christ as that hub in the, mental, in, in the middle, in the center. Jesus is the center. And in this life, there are so many things that are going to try to constantly encroach on that. 
and try to push Christ out of the center. We have to recognize with clear sight when those things come into our lives, whether they're people, finances, things, circumstances, situations. We have to recognize them with clarity, and we have to expose them for what they are. That is the mark, not of the imposter bride, but of the faithful bride exposing that. So who are you, fellow Christian? You are made in God's image. You are loved by God. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're shaped by God's church. You're saved by grace. You're sanctified and perfected by God. And you are the bride of Christ. And I will tell you, if you hold firmly to those truths, yours will come to be a faith that doesn't waver. It will come to be a full faith, a full-fledged faith, a fulfilling faith. And in the same way that most of us, as young folks, desire to become adults, let us all desire to grow up and mature in our faiths, to be perfect as Christ is perfect, to be spiritually resilient and faithful adults. Amen? Amen. Let's Let's, uh, well, if you want to stand together or just turn your palms up this morning and receive a benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you leave remembering that you are made in God's image, Imago Dei, that you are loved by God, that you are filled with the Holy Spirit who is at work in your life that you are shaped by God's church, that you are saved by grace, that you are sanctified and perfected by God, and that you are Christ's bride. Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.